going to be looking at uh, this evening is the same one that was read for us earlier as part of the church reading plan. So if you turn, please, with me to Jonah chapter 1. It's that page in your Bible if you're using a a church Bible that doesn't have a number on it, but uh, by interpolation, I think you can work it out. It's 927 page 927. Uh, I won't read the passage again, uh, but if you've got your Bibles opened uh, at uh, that portion of God's Word, that would be helpful. I want to begin by asking the question, what happens when God's will comes up against a contrary human will? What happens when God's will comes up against a contrary human will? Oh, God says, do such and such, and we reply, no way. What does God do? Does he crush the human will with a ruthless hand in order to accomplish his purpose? Or does he say, well, I'll, I'll just dilute my sovereign will. I'll shelve it for just now, and I'll readjust my plans. What happens when God and his people are set on a collision course? Uh, the book of Jonah addresses that uh, question. It's probably the best known of all of the minor prophets. It's unique among them uh, for its uh, biographical narrative format. Now, a narrative that has something profoundly significant to teach is before us. Uh, something profoundly significant to teach about uh, the mercy of God on the one hand and the perversity and willfulness of man on the other. Uh, but before examining that, we need just a little bit of background. Jonah lived uh, around 800 BC at a time when uh, in the ancient uh, Eastern world, the shadow of uh, Assyria was looming large, a sadistic, ruthless war machine. Uh, read Nahum 3, uh, 1 to 5 for some background there. The annexation of Israel was just over the horizon. Assyria's goal, world dominion. And it was to Nineveh, the capital city of that empire, that God called Jonah. Now, if you want an analogous situation, uh, imagine God sending a Scottish missionary uh, to Nazi Germany in the late 1930s to tell them they were ripe for judgment unless they repented. Uh, if the post was advertised in the free church record, I suspect there would not be too many applications for the post. But God didn't advertise. He said to Jonah, go, and Jonah replied, no. Go, Jonah, no, said Jonah. And Jonah goes into rebellious overdrive. And I want us 
this evening to ask what caused that. Actually, I want to ask uh, three separate questions, and there are a number of answers to each question. But the first concerns uh, the contributory factors to, to Jonah's rebellion. What caused him to say no to God? And I'd like us, first of all, to consider Jonah's prejudice. Here is a man who was of the view that the only good Ninevite was a dead Ninevite. That was his position. A message of judgment may have been acceptable, but there was no way he was going to preach a message of repentance. I wonder if we are selective about whom we think should hear the gospel. You remember that problem existed in the early church? Peter would never have preached the gospel in the home of Cornelius, the Roman centurion, if God hadn't dealt with his prejudice. When we were language learning in Iran some 40 years ago, we had a a language helper, and uh, part of our task was to make up little stories in Farsi which we would narrate to him, and he would listen, he would correct the grammar and so on, uh, and so we would progress in the language. That was the plan. On this particular day, we were telling the story of having uh, met a, a Muslim, young Muslim man in the park and had begun to share the gospel with him, and he had become increasingly interested. And as we narrated this story, our language helper's face, uh, he, he just fumed, and we thought, help. Uh, is our Farsi so bad? Is the syntax of our uh, sentence construction uh, uh, as, as bad as, as perhaps it could possibly be? Uh, maybe it's our pronunciation. Have we got that all wrong? And at the close of our little story, he shook his head and says, don't you know, it is God's intention never to see any Muslim converted and we, we were there as missionaries to Muslims. You know, we were somewhat taken aback by that. And then he went on to say, well, you see, in my village, my grandparents told me this. It happened in their day. Some Muslims came and they, they attacked the village and they took some of the babies and they threw them in the air and they caught them in their spears. He said... That's the people you want to see converted. There is no way that God wants to convert folks like that. Prejudice, deep-seated prejudice. Well, deep-seated prejudice can erode our submission to the will of God, and we see something of that here in this passage, I'm sure. John Stott, in his book, Our Guilty Silence, lists those people we would never dream of speaking to about God. Uh, we'd certainly never uh, speak to the woman next door who allows her dog to mess on our well-manicured lawn. Nor would we speak to the people upstairs whose stereo system blares at full volume morning to night. What about the church plant in Charleston? What about 
praying for other denominations? What about supporting the work of God in particular countries? Do we reason like Jonah? Lord, we know these people. And you definitely don't want to involve yourself with the likes of them. That's prejudice. And we certainly see uh, something of that in, uh, in Jonah. Secondly, rebellion can be fueled by our disaffection with God's character. Now, Jonah explains at some length his position in chapter 4, verse 2. Listen to what he says after one of the greatest spiritual awakenings that we are able to read of in the Old Testament. This is his response to this great spiritual awakening. He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. And I don't like that. I really don't like this aspect of your character. You see, he considered God's mercy too wide, and Jonah wanted to narrow it, to constrict it, to push it into a box of Jonah-shaped human dimensions. And men become rebellious when God refuses to allow them to shape him in their image. That's what Jonah wanted to do. And Satan prompts us to ask the question, how can I serve a God who? And then he helps us to fill in the blanks. Have you noticed that? He will fill in the blanks. Treats me so unfairly, says Eve. Refuses to be bought off by costly sacrifice, says King Saul. Who will not give free course to my ambition, says Balaam. Who wants to be merciful to my enemies, says Jonah. We did elsewhere that God says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And the implication is clear. Don't presume to dictate to me those on whom I should bestow mercy and those on whom I should not. I will not be shaped in your image. Thirdly, I want to suggest that the rebellion here is incited when a hitherto, <clears throat> pardon me, dormant issue is awakened. You see, up until this point in Jonah's life, Jonah's will and God's will were tracking on two parallel lines. They were in agreement. They walked together. But suddenly, these parallel lines hit a point of diversion, a divergence, rather. You see, mercy for the non-Jew had never been an issue for Jonah before. And such 
points of divergence can creep up upon us uh, unawares. Who would have thought I would have reacted like that? And what had hitherto been a life of submission takes on, as we see, a quite different trajectory. Remember when great numbers turned back from following Jesus, he asked the twelve, will you also go away? And Peter replies, he's always first in, Peter replies, Lord, where else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We are tracking with you, Jesus. We are in parallel lines. But after our Lord began to speak more clearly about his death, a dormant issue is awakened. A point of divergence is discovered, and Peter takes hold of Jesus and shakes him violently and says, not so, Lord. You're not going to Jerusalem to die. We're not having it. And he attempted to alter Jesus' agenda, undermine his mission. So too with Jonah. As soon as this hitherto an explored point, point of divergence was unearthed. Mercy for the heathen. Pow! Rebellion erupts. Fourthly, notice Jonah's rebellion involves suppressing the word of God. This is perhaps all the more surprising when we set this against the recent resurgent spiritual movement that had begun in the land by Elijah and Elisha with their renewed emphasis on word ministry. You remember the significance of uh, what happened to Elijah when he fled to Mount Horeb and he, uh, he's waiting for God to reveal himself. And he sees this powerful wind that is dividing mountains in two. But God's not in the wind. And, and he sees this earthquake that causes such turmoil on the face of the earth. God's not in the earthquake. And he sees this fire that rains. God's not in the fire. But he hears a still, small voice. And God was saying in all of this, the way forward for my work will not be in the kind of miraculous, dramatic events you're looking for, Elijah, the likes of Mount Carmel and the fire that came down from heaven. That's not the way forward for my work from this point on. The way forward is through a word ministry. The word of God, the still small voice of God is going to do a powerful transforming work in the lives of men and women. Hence, the reemergence of the school of the prophets who were committed to preaching. And it seems reasonable to assume that Jonah was a graduate from such a word-focused school of theology. 
In verse 1, we read, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. There's no dubiety about the source of this word or a lack of clarity regarding its meaning. Jonah knew exactly what he had been suppressing, the very thing he had been championing, God's word. Listen to what God is saying. Jonah knew what he was suppressing. You see, our basic problem with obedience is not that we don't understand God's Word. Our problem is that we do understand God's Word, but we don't want to obey it. We can choose to suppress it, and that's what Jonah's doing here. As conservative evangelicals, we boast of our confidence in the Word of God, do we not? And rightly so. But when God speaks through it in a way that doesn't track with our aspirations and our hopes, when it exposes our prejudices, then we too can begin to unpack our running shoes and we're off, just like Jonah. Fifthly, this is beginning to sound like a Puritan sermon, but I don't get to 165thly, I assure you. Fifthly, did Jonah's concern for his reputation feed his rebellion? If we were to read 2 Kings 14 and 23, we would find mention there of Jonah. He was a man with a successful, respected position. Uh, he had a name. He was the great preaching prophet of his day. But if he went to Nineveh, might he not be branded a traitor? We learn too from that same passage, verse 26, I think it is, that this people, the people of Israel in Jonah's day, they were... Uh, subject to oppression and persecution. Was it a Jezebel-style religious persecution? We're not told. But persecution can drive us in one of two directions. We can end up praying for our persecutors. Stephen did that, remember? or we can harden our hearts against them. There, there are doves and hawks in every society. And in order to retain the favor of a persecuted people, we can take a course of action that we know to be wrong. We want their favor we take a course of action that we know to be wrong. Interestingly, the name Jonah means dove. That's what the name means, dove. Would living up to his name destroy his reputation? Does what others think of us shape how we respond to the clear command of God's Word. 
in our family life, in our neighborhood, in our workplace? Do we act in ways that are contrary to the new nature that God has given us in order to retain the approval of men? Whenever we do, we allow ourselves to become, we allow others rather, to become our conscience. The man who is most concerned for his public appearance before men has little concern for his private standing before God. Is that you, Jonah? Is that someone here this evening? Second question I want to ask about Jonah's rebellion is, what does it look like? What shape does it take? How does it express itself? Well, in verse 3 we read, uh, and I'm using a different translation here, uh, Jonah fled from the presence of the Lord. It's an interesting uh, expression. Uh, I think it's a helpful translation. He fled from the presence of the Lord. Did he want as much geographical distance between himself and the location of his call? If so, then he would have been delighted when the, the Joppa travel agent sold him a ticket for a ship that was bound for Spain. You couldn't get much further away from Nineveh than that. But surely Jonah would have been familiar with Psalm 139, where we read, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me and your right hand will hold me fast. If I say... Surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me. Even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day for darkness is as light to you. In other words, Jonah, read this psalm and see that you can't outrun God. You can't travel beyond uh, the boundaries of his rule or beyond the sphere of his influence. Surely when Jonah studied Theology 101, he'd learned of God's omnipresence. God is everywhere. What then does it mean to run from God's presence? He was running both from the place of service and the place of personal communion. He has closed down his radio receiver. He's thrown away the transmitter. He is prepared to sacrifice the joy of intimate fellowship with God. Can you imagine that? When the sailors are crying to their false gods for help, Jonah's asleep. He's not praying. He has closed down his transmitter. He has sacrificed the joy of intimate fellowship with God. 
And we can do likewise when we refuse to walk in obedience to God's Word. God's Spirit may well withdraw His presence. The Word that once warmed our heart now leaves us cold. Those hymns that once lifted our spirit seem to have a a uniform dirge-like quality. And all we have left is the dull memory of former days of obedience and service. And it's a memory that gets duller and duller and duller. Secondly, I want to suggest that Jonah's rebellion may well have encouraged him to misread God's providence. You see, when we suppress God's word... Providences are seized upon as our prime choice of guidance. When Jonah came to Joppa, there just happened to be a ship there that was going as far away as Tarshish. Isn't that a great discovery? This is surely a sign that God has relented become sympathetic to the difficult position that he's placed me in. This is God's providence. Wonderful. I'll take that as guidance. The rebel is always happier to allow circumstances and signs to guide him and argues If God didn't intend such and such, he would never have allowed this providence to cross my path. God is surely speaking through these circumstances. Some years ago, an American pastor uh, justified his adultery to his congregation along these lines. God obviously intended me to form a relationship with this other woman or he wouldn't have brought her to work in the staff office. You see, it's, it's God's providence that, that I just happened to, to, to bump into her, was attracted to her. It, it, it's been God's plan for me all along. Oh, we'll forget what God's word says about adultery and all of that. It's the providence that's the thing. Don't be guided by circumstances when you've refused to be guided by God's Word. Uh, Thirdly, we may well here see Jonah putting conscience to bed. Verse 5, he went below deck and fell into a sleep, a deep sleep. Conscience is God's ally. And over time, conscience is something that can be manipulated and sedated, while God's Word refreshes and regulates conscience. But God's Word is still fresh in Jonah's mind. Go to Nineveh, go to Nineveh, go to Nineveh. Conscience, I would suggest, is not yet silence. And Jonah wants to get some kind of relief And he's maybe looking for it, is he not, in the oblivion of sleep. And people will resort to a vast variety of distracting activities in an attempt to quench the voice of conscience. 
Some drown themselves in alcohol. Others satiate themselves with endless TV programs or time-demanding hobbies. What they don't want is reflective time when they can ask the question, is it well with my soul? Are things between me and God good? Are we good in terms of relationship? Are we good? Was this sleep a form of escapism from the reality of Jonah's rebellion and its consequences? A condition from which it took the heathen captain to rouse him in the midst of a fearful storm and point to the desperate danger they were all in. Don't you see, Jonah, what's happening? I think, too, we, we have here an expression of rebellion in terms of a willful suicide bid. Notice in response to the sailor's question, what should we do to calm the storm? I want to suggest Jonah could have said, I'm going to repent of my rebellion and promise to obey God. And I believe had he done that, the storm would have stilled. It would have achieved its disciplinary purpose. Jonah didn't know that the ship was being shadowed by a great fish that was going to swallow him up. As far as he was concerned, by asking to be thrown overboard, he was saying, in effect, I'd rather die than obey God, really. You know, that's, that's where my rebellion has taken me. I'd rather die than do what God wants me to do. What a position to be in. But I think we see something of that in this passage. What then were the consequences of Jonah's rebellion? Uh, the first thing I want us to see is something of the collateral damage, and we, we see that uh, in uh, verse uh, 5 of chapter 1. All the sailors were afraid. Each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. As a result of the storm, the ship's cargo was thrown overboard. Now, how many times have we read this passage and failed to ask the question, how many merchants did that put out of business? You say, that's a trivial thing. Well, if you're the one that's put out of business, it's not a trivial thing. The loss of your cargo, uh, that's... Uh, part of the collateral damage of Jonah's uh, rebellion. To say nothing of the, the emotional trauma that was uh, the experience of the ship's company. Uh, being in a storm like this is uh, no easy matter. I think we often try to convince ourselves that other people will not be affected by our rebellion. But the truth of the matter is that there are expanding ripples 
that reach out to touch the lives of others in a whole host of ways. The rebel is invariably self-absorbed, so much so that he fails to see how his rebellion is impacting upon his family, his friends, his church fellowship, his workmates. Rebellion is costly. There is always collateral damage. But then, secondly, we see uh, Jonah suffering a very public exposure to his rebellion. Uh, and one wonders, you know, when Jonah goes off on this little Mediterranean trip, did he hope to keep his rebellion under wraps, hidden from the mockery and the criticism of the world? Well, he hadn't bargained on the lot-casting ritual organized by the sailors. And verse 7, the lot pointed to Jonah. Notice Jonah didn't say, uh, can you throw the lots again, guys? Let's do the best out of three. You know, I didn't like that one. Do it again. Uh, maybe he was familiar with Proverbs 16 and 33. Yes, the lot is cast, but it's, it's God who determines uh, how it falls. Uh, Jonah knows that no matter how many times they threw the lot, the finger would be pointed to him. He was going to be exposed as the reason for the storm. And as the story unfolds, I'm sure it was a very embarrassed Jonah who explained that the true God, the God whom he worshipped, actually controlled the raging elements. Yeah, my, my God's doing all of this. This is God's storm, don't you know? This is the God from whose presence I am running. One of the very remarkable things uh, in this narrative is that despite Jonah's exposure and confession of guilt, these sailors still, heathen sailors, still try to save him. They still row with all their might to try and, and keep the ship afloat in the midst of the storm. They're, they're still rowing for Jonah. You think, that's, that's incredible. Thirdly, it's clear in terms of consequences of rebellion and we often say that, you know, we should look for, for God's uh, positive work in any situation. It's clear that Jonah had unwittingly preached God's word to these heathen, for they were converted. They were converted. After they, at Jonah's command, had thrown him overboard, what do we read that they do in verse 16? At this the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and they made vows to him. 
I love the irony of that. Here is the man who says, you'll no find me taking the gospel to the heathen. They are undeserving of the grace of God. And the heathen are the very ones who are able, before Jonah ever does, to experience the triumph of the grace of God in their lives as a result of the storm. Isn't there lovely irony there? Jonah says, never the heathen. And the heathen fall down in worship. They respond to the storm in a way that Jonah as yet has not done. It's incredible, is it not? God is in the business of bringing good out of evil. The rod used to chasten his child Jonah becomes the crook that draws others to himself. What does that tell us about the, the wonder of God's dealings uh, with us? Well, uh, we've rushed through this chapter, but we began this evening by asking what happens when God's will comes up against a contrary human will? Does God leave human wreckage scattered all over the landscape or the seascape? If all we see this evening is an analysis of human rebellion, then we've failed to grasp the dominant theme of this chapter. Jonah is going to reflect upon it in chapter 2. And as he does so, his attention is gripped by the chesed of God. Chesed is a Hebrew word, rich in meaning, difficult to translate in just one or two words. It is God's covenant love, his covenant faithfulness, his covenant loyalty. And Jonah is going to come to see that a network of grace has left God's fingerprints all over his life. The covenant love of God has orchestrated the wind. It has caused the storm. It has caused the lot to fall in a particular direction, pointing to Jonah as the guilty party. It has secured the services of a great fish that's shadowing the ship uh, to rescue and, yes, to imprison Jonah once he was cast overboard. You can't read chapter 1 without seeing the, the, the tremendous activity of God. It's as though there are, there are two scenes in operation, two stages, what, what Jonah is doing and what God is doing as well. The book of Hebrews reminds us that God's dealings with his children are as such he disciplines those whom he loves. And from day one, God's covenant love is showcased by fastening itself 
upon Jonah. And God is saying, I will not let you go. My love will not let you go. Nothing can separate you from my love. You see, God is in the business of restoration, and no project is too great a challenge for Him. I wonder there could well be someone here this evening who's begun to identify in some measure with Jonah. Yes, I'm, I'm on the run uh, from God uh, in this area of my life or on that. Perhaps you've sought to distance yourself from the Word, to suppress it. Yes, come to church, but the Word of God is being suppressed. It's being uh, held down. Is there some area of your life where you've refused to submit to God's rule? God says, do this, and you've said, no, 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 not me. Have you begun to discover that disobedience doesn't offer the, the protection and the enjoyment that you'd hoped for? It was surely going to be better than this. Well, God can bring you to a place where you are willing to do His will. It's one of the great uh, prayers of Augustine, was it not? Lord, make me willing to do your will. Lord, I know how twisted I am inside. I know how perverse I am. I know how prejudiced I am. Make me willing to do your will. And that may well involve buffeting you with his storms, but, but covenant love will always ensure that these storms are designed for your good. God is with you in the storm. He's with you in the storm. And he refuses to let you go. That's why in a moment we're going to sing, O love that will not let me go, God holds on and on and on. That's the focus of this chapter. Yes, Jonah's a rebel, but God's covenant love and faithfulness is the thing that should warm and thrill our hearts. Let's pray. Our gracious Father and our God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that uh, we seldom read it without seeing ourselves in its mirror where we have sought to disobey you, where we have sought to rebel against you, where we have put on our running shoes. And yet time and again, you're the God who has proved himself faithful one who has run after us, one who has persuaded us that you have not let us, will not let us go. 
for you have purposes of blessing for us that far exceed our wildest imagination. And for that we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.